This episode of Working Lunch is fueled by Popeyes. Franklin, our good friends at Popeyes, home of some delicious fried chicken. We are uh, teasing out Popeyes because we're going to have a segment uh, later in the, in the pod about RBI and some very aggressive uh, environment sustainability goals that they've set for themselves. We're going to interview two executives from RBI. Franklin, we love Popeyes in our office. They won our chicken challenge way back when, a couple of years ago. What is your go-to at Popeyes? Did they did they win the chicken challenge? I think they did. Yeah, I thought it was a draw. No, but no, we had a winner. We had a gold medal winner, and it was Popeyes. I love the chicken sandwich. That's what I'm going with. That's what I always go with. I will tell you this though: they have the old school fried apple pie. You need to get into some of that if you have fried apple pie. That's that just sounds southern, Franklin. You, I know you'd be all over that, Franklin. You said uh, earlier that Carson has a go-to at Popeyes. What's Carson's go-to? Oh, Cajun flounder. Forget about uh, it. I let me tell you one thing: I will never get this Cajun yeah. flounder. I'll tell good. you the rice and beans, very good. You need to you need to also have that in the list. No, I mean everything at Popeyes is so good, but you you just kind of run home to Mama and get that chicken sandwich because they have they have redefined the chicken sandwich. So uh, we love our good friends at Popeyes. And on that note, let's do the show. Can I help you? We need to talk about your flair. I think I'm gonna have to go supersize. I'm proud to be a bartender. Ain't nothing wrong with that. We need a political revolution. Mr. Vice President, I'm speaking. Come on, man. With all due respect, that's a bunch of malarkey. From the home office of Align Public Strategies in downtown Orlando, Florida, this is Working Lunch. Coming up on the podcast, Restaurant Brands International took a huge industry-leading role in the sustainability space. With their announcement, they have set substantial new climate-related targets on greenhouse gas emissions, pledging to cut their emissions in half by 2030 and be net zero by 2050. We are visited by the team that led this effort, Becky Hall, Director of Global Sustainability, and Natalie Petulay, Senior Manager of Sustainability, come by to talk to us about the company's journey down this road, and more importantly, how and why they got there. And the president's controversial vaccine mandate policy is still front of mind for employers, but uncertainty surrounds what the final rules will look like. To help us sort it out, we are joined once again by Ed Eggie, Vice President for Government Relations and Workforce Development at the National Retail Federation, who's going to walk us through where we are in the final rulemaking process and what operators can expect to see in the next few weeks. And a record 4.3 million workers quit, yes, quit their jobs in August, with the highest percentage of those coming in the restaurant and retail sector. We'll talk about the ramifications of that as well as the road ahead. We'll discuss those issues and wrap it up with the legislative scorecard. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the show. I'm Joe Kefauver, along with my Align Public Strategies partner, Franklin Coley. Well, many of our listeners will remember uh, a few weeks ago on the podcast, we were talking about a, a kind of a, what I would consider a landmark uh, announcement by Restaurant Brands International. As we all know, the parent company of Burger King, Popeyes, and Tim Hortons uh, made a pretty bold announcement regarding sustainability goals and going to net zero by 2050. And we went through that announcement a few weeks ago. Uh, lo and behold, the uh, the leaders of that effort at RBI have uh, been kind enough to join us on the podcast and kind of walk us through uh, that announcement and how they got there and what their ultimate goals are and how they're going to get there and all bunch of good questions. So I want to uh, welcome Becky Hall, the Director of Global Sustainability, and Natalie Petulay, the Senior Manager of Sustainability for RBI. Ladies, thank you very much for joining us on Working Lunch. Thank you for having thank us. Thank you for having us. Yeah, so this is an area that we talk about a lot on this podcast, and I just was so interested to see you know, what, what you all were doing, and it, more, more importantly, also about the process 
of how big, large organizations come to that space. But first of all, tell me a little bit about RBI, this space, and your roles in this space before we kind of kick off the program itself. Sure. Uh, I can start here. So Restaurant Brands International, or RBI as we lovingly call it, is the parent company of Burger King, Popeyes, and Tim Hortons. We operate more than 27,000 restaurants in more than 100 countries globally. We have four um, global offices. I'm based in Miami. Natalie is based in Toronto. Our other closest co-workers live in Switzerland, and then we have an office in Singapore as well. As far as my role, I joined RBI in July of 2020. So I've been here for a little bit over a year to lead global sustainability across our three brands. Um, We really like to kind of oversimplify and bucket what we do into what we call these five chapters. So in terms of what I do, I'm really responsible, including with Natalie and others, on four of those chapters. Um, The first is identifying what we call areas of opportunity. So where we have gaps to our competitors or where we have opportunities to lead versus our competitors. From there, we work to develop commitments and policies that are informed by feasibility assessments. So what are the cost implications to franchisees? What is the commercial availability and viability of these commitments and policies? And then I work very closely with our brands to determine the priority of this work and as well as to determine what their vision is for sustainability overall, leading into overseeing the execution of our targets and projects and ensuring on-time completion. And over to you, Nat. Yeah, thank you. So I joined, I think I just hit my five-year mark um, at RBI. And I joined um, initially through our leadership development program, which is kind of a rotational program, where after that, I I spent a couple of years in marketing to really get a sense of the business. And I learned a ton. And then um, for the past two years, I've been in a sustainability-focused role. So basically, when RBI decided um, to really prioritize sustainability across the business, um, I was able to help bring that, that framework to life that we call Restaurant Brands for Good. And my role since then has really focused on bringing internal and external stakeholders along with us in that journey. So helping folks understand the work that we're doing, the progress that we're making. um, And that includes, you know, employees. So internally kind of shifting the culture and um, also externally, including plugging into our government relations efforts, investor relations, and then meeting, for example, with key NGOs that help push our thinking on, on this type of stuff. And then really sharing all of that through our external reporting as well. So Natalie, tell me about Restaurant Brands for Good. Is that your overall platform? Is that the, the, the housing where all your initiatives and programs are housed under? Exactly, yes. So we look at sustainability at RBI through this framework that we call Restaurant Brands for Good. We announced that about two years ago, um, early 2020. And we built it out after doing what's called a materiality assessment, where basically we dug deep into our soul and, and also really reflected with our key external partners to understand what's most important to our business um, to focus on from a sustainability point of view. So again, thinking about what's important to our guests, what's important in our industry, you know, the restaurant industry specifically, uh, what's important to employees, what kind of regulations are we seeing coming through? And uh, yeah, and then we landed on, on three pillars of food, planet and people and communities that we use to basically organize our work. And then we have a number of priorities under that. And we've really come a long way basically in the last 18 months, understanding how to make an impact in each of those areas and climate being one really big piece of that. Yeah. So how, how did, what was the process? But you all said, all right, you know, that you got the, the internal feedback or the internal coordination that you were going to prioritize climate. What was that? What was that process like? Yeah. Early on, we, we really saw that the world was shifting. 
everybody, um, kind of everybody that we really care about was becoming more and more aware of the negative effects of climate change. And we saw that issue growing in importance, especially to our guests, younger guests in particular, who really represent the future of our brands. And if you just turn on like the news, you open social media, it's very clear. You see this topic all over the place. It was just recently as well, um, Climate Week uh, in New York City. So just an example, but we really saw this issue growing in importance and we knew that it was something important for us to tackle as well. Not only that, you know, government regulations upcoming, governments also starting to set their own targets, um, investors starting to push companies to disclose their environmental impacts more and more. And kind of bottom line, all of these pressures were really helping inform our priorities. But at the end of the day, we know that this is something that's really important for us to do. It's the right thing for us to do as a leading restaurant company. You know, with a footprint of over 27,000 restaurants, you know that making this a priority will have an impact. So for us, it was an important thing to work on. Yeah, and we, we've talked a lot about that on this podcast, the piece you talked about, the investor community and how the investor community is trying to get ahead and manage risk and want, want to invest in entities that are going to have the least amount of pain when some of these regulations come down the pike and have to change their model as little as possible. And so getting ahead of that and managing that risk, attracting investment dollars, I think on a related note, this week I saw big consortium of investment firms with over $30 trillion in assets is pushing major employers, major companies to do exactly what you did, basically following your, your footprints and say, Hey, this is where we got to go. If, if we're going to be, you know, feel confident about investing in your long-term term growth. So ultimately the marketplace will find its way into these conversations. You know, as I say, we've, we've spent a lot of time on this podcast talking about just that. So, you know, Becky, t- tell me a little bit, if you can, about, you know, this announcement, this strategy, these goals, how did you all set these timelines, these goals? Did you partner with third party experts and validators? How did you come to this, this place? Well, it was a lot of work <laughs> um, and we did, I'll start there. We did partner with an external consulting firm called Guidehouse. They're incredible. Um, but really the first step in this journey, actually the day that I started at RBI last July, uh, you know, I was, I was going over what I needed to do, meeting people, really focused on meeting people, right? But above all, it was like, hey, you need to start calculating our carbon footprint. I'm like, okay, got it. Uh, so that was where we f- started after, after hiring Guidehouse was we calculated our greenhouse gas footprint. Uh, we d- dove deep into our value chain really to assess our baseline of impact, right? And to evaluate where across our business we could drive the most change, but also yield the most positive results. Where this took us is to developing a roadmap to get us to 2030 that would act as a foundation for those climate targets you were just speaking about that we just recently announced, uh, which are science-based targets to reduce emissions by 50% by 2030, as well as achieving net zero emissions by 2050 or earlier, with special focus on scope one and two emissions or directly controlled operations, as well as within scope three, our franchise restaurants and our supply chain that make up 97% of our total footprint. So it was by far the largest area of impact across our business. And while this roadmap, you know, I mentioned will get us to 2030, it is going to be the foundation for getting us to 2050 as well. And at a high level where we plan to focus is working with suppliers on pilots and and much more, but specifically pilots like regenerative agriculture. Um, We want to implement and introduce more energy efficient equipment and standards at our restaurants, as well as our directly controlled buildings. We need to develop a renewable energy guideline for our buildings 
And we also want to transition our vehicle fleet and our truck fleet that we own to electric models by 2030, all the while looking for opportunities for meaningful collaboration within our industry, as well as with relevant um, industries. You know, Becky, I'm a, I'm a recovering Walmart executive uh, from the previous <laughs> life. And I will tell you that, you know, the, the, the behavior that you can force through the supply chain, yeah. supply chain is where it all happens, right? And if you can force upstream changes in that supply chain and that, you know, Walmart was obviously has an unbelievable, you know, market position to be able to do that. But in your world, so do you, right? And so when you can force those changes up the supply chain, you can really expedite and make things happen uh, at a very quick pace. What, you know, one of the things that, that, you know, I've learned from my travails in corporate America is that, you know, you, you got different segments of the company that kind of, even though you're on the same team and driving for the same goals, you know, you got your operations people that, that care about their, their world and you got development people who care about building restaurants and you've got culinary teams and you've got franchise development and franchise relations, getting all those different groups to come together and say, yeah, this is something collectively we want to do yeah. must have been a, a, a yeoman's task. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Uh, like I said, it was a lot of work. I And I can definitely speak to getting the teams necessary involved and, and getting us to a point where we felt comfortable with the targets and a plan. But I know Natalie can definitely add on to how we were inspiring employees and working with external stakeholders along the way to really validate this plan and these targets as well. But, you know, the, the this whole process took about 18 months, which I think can be unique. Some some companies go faster, some take longer. But for us, you know, we really wanted to be patient and take our time because the stakes were just way too high to really have rushed this. And we wanted to get it right. I think in addition to that, it was always very important for our leadership team to strike the right balance with our targets and our commitments and plans. Um, not only just climate, but in, in general, across all the other focus areas of sustainability, to commit to things that were bold, of course, but achievable. Because ultimately, and especially with these long-term targets, you know, we're, we're committing a group of future RBI leaders to commitments that they're just going to inherit. And I don't know about y'all, but I plan, if everything goes according to plan, to be retired by 2050. So I feel confident in building a plan that ultimately these leaders will be able to just pick up and, and get across the finish line. But Natalie, I'll, I'll pass it over to you because I know you can talk about the internal and external stakeholder piece. Yeah, totally. Um, like Becky said, our employees at RBI are a really important piece of this puzzle. Like they are going to be ultimately the ambassadors of this news with everybody that our business touches face to face. So thinking about, you know, franchisees, suppliers, you know, investors. So it was important as part of our launch plan to make sure that we took the opportunity to educate all of our employees across the business. So Becky worked with a ton of people. It was a super cross-functional effort to really get all the details in place, but there were still um, quite a few people across the business who hadn't worked with her as part of developing these targets. And we needed to make sure that they knew what was happening too, and that they believed in this work and that they could speak to it um, as well. So we held town halls, lunch and learns, you know, we've got it all over our internal newsfeed as well, because we really believe it's it's super important to prioritize internal communication as much as external when it comes to sustainability, because that's really how to make it all all work and, and happen in the long term. Yeah. And I'll but, just, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, go ahead Okay. I was going to say, I'll just add one more thing. Really along the way to we mainly from our leadership team, but across the company, um, were asked very honest and tough questions, you know, really led by 
Natalie and I's boss, Duncan, who's our chief corporate officer, our CEO, Jose, and this, our COO, Josh, they really, they, they made sure that every time we spoke to them about their plan, that they were giving us very direct feedback. And I think this led ultimately to the plan that we have now that we all feel really proud in and that we have aligned across the business because of all the internal work that we had to do to, to ultimately get to the place we are now. Well, I, I tell you, you, you mentioned the 18 month process and whether that was quick or slow, <laughs> I think it's remarkably fast. It grows, oh. uh, business is complex and is spread out across the globe as you all are. To me, the 18 months would go by like in, in a snap. So impressive, it, it impressive <laughs> time frame there. So one of the external stakeholder groups I'm, I'm most fascinated with how you navigated were our friends in the franchisee community. Um, you know, I've been around long enough that I've seen you know franchisors and franchisees can disagree about what day of the week it is whether the sun comes up in the east easy stuff they can disagree on right this yeah. is hard stuff and you guys are are making commitments that in many ways it would be the franchisees themselves that have to make good on right yeah how did you navigate what is always for all companies a volatile space yeah i mean like you said franchisees are extremely important to our business they're the ones that execute and live out our, our work every single day. And so bringing them along for the journey is, is critical. I think while we were building the plans, we always had the franchisees in mind, particularly around the green building standards piece. We always wanted to focus on developing standards that not only, of course, would reduce energy at our buildings and thus emissions, but would also achieve a really strong ROI. Um, you know, at the end of the day, we want to drive po positive business results as well. But throughout the, the process, um, we really had to partner very closely with the brands in the regions to ensure that these franchisees groups were updated on our plans and our goals, whether this was one-on-one -on -one meetings with franchisees groups across the world or joining in on quarterly updates at the brand level or um, joining franchisee committee meetings like the image committee at Burger King. Our goal was always to be as transparent as possible and that, that will continue. You know, every we always want to make sure that our franchisees are as up to date, especially on climate, but really with all the other work that we're doing as well. So now let me pivot to you real quick. Um, you, you mentioned collaborating and you've talked to other companies in the industry. We saw, I think earlier this week, maybe yesterday, McDonald's make a similar announcement. I'm getting my, my time frame confused. Maybe it's last week or early this week, but McDonald's made a similar announcement to you, what, what you all made in terms of net zero by 2050 and emissions uh, cuts by 2030. Do you all compare notes uh, with your counterparts in those other companies, uh, other brands? Are you all kind of collaborative together? Are you collaborating with the National Restaurant Association or you know NRF or IFA, whoever it might be? What's been the, the kind of the, the cadence of your conversations with those folks? So we are always super excited to see other folks make really ambitious climate commitments um, in the same way that that we have. It's really important, and we recognize that it's really important that everybody, you know, does their fair share. And for us, we recognize that sustainability is one of those topics that's not possible to address on your own in a silo, you know, one company having its own direction. So part of our process included engagement with, you know, industry roundtables, like, for example, the Global Roundtable for Sustainable Beef. And especially for this announcement, it was really important for us to check in with industry trade associations, like you mentioned, as well as some influential NGOs, subject matter experts, and others who we knew were going to be part of the solution um, to make sure that they understand where we're headed, how we can work together. Um, and ultimately, they help push our thinking. And really, more than ever, we're seeing that working together 
really will help amplify our individual efforts and, and anything that we could do on our own. But Becky, I think you might have something to add there as well. Uh, yeah, I think Joe, you really spoke about it earlier in terms of collaboration with suppliers and how critical that relationship is, right? And we really believe that it's important to have aligned ambitions with our suppliers so that we're all growing in the same way. So a super um, important piece of our overall strategy to 2030 and beyond is to engage with suppliers directly, specifically those that are the most carbon intensive, first to educate them on climate change, but ultimately to get them to a place where they can measure their own footprints and set their own climate targets. Um, it's important for industry-wide change, but also, of course, you know these changes will benefit us and other industry leaders as well. And you talked about that transparency. How, how do you all, you know, what, what's the process by which you're going to track your results? You, you spoke a little bit to that, but it broadcast. What happens in, you know, 2028, you guys fall short of a goal or two. Are you going to share that information? Will the investment community be asking you about that? You know, what is your process for that? Definitely transparency is really important in this journey. Our intention is to report on an annual basis. For the technical folks, reporting basically through CDP, which is the industry standard disclosure um, platform to really share your, your climate change progress and strategies, but also to make sure, you know, not only that we're communicating to the technical folks, but to translate our work and our progress in a really digestible and transparent way to make sure that ultimately it reaches the eyes and ears of our guests who we know care about this work. And it is a part of our process where, where we, you know, encounter challenges that we're transparent about those challenges as well, because that not only helps stakeholders understand where we're at and, and where we're headed, but also, you know, as we were talking about collaboration, it supports other people to address those same challenges and, and so that we can kind of bring visibility to what's happening and, um, and work together on solutions. And, and, and for initiatives like this, you know, what's the part you guys look forward to the most? Is it, you know, continuing the, the conversation internally? Is it continuing the education piece with your franchisees and employees, or is it the the public facing piece of, of letting you know opinion leaders and policymakers know what you're doing? What part of that is kind of got you guys ginned up for the next ten years? It's all exciting, but I actually think what I'm most excited about is what I don't know yet. I think I'm excited about all of the innovation that's going to be that's going to happen in the next ten to thirty years and beyond that I just quite frankly can't even wrap my brain around. It's it's the reason why I love sustainability so much. You just never stop learning. And I think climate is definitely one of those areas that is just evolving so rapidly that the innovation that is gonna happen in the future is just going to blow our minds. And I cannot wait to see what that innovation is and how it plays a role in not only just us as RBI achieving our targets, but really, lessening climate change and the negative effects just across the globe. I think for me, um, I'm just really excited to, to see us start to reach these key milestones that we had really only dreamed of two years ago. Like you said, you know, 18 months, you know, when you're doing the work feels like a long time, but when you look back on it, it's, it's like a blink of an eye. So I'm really proud of, of the progress that our team has made. Um, and like Becky said, it's only going to get more exciting as we go forward. But, you know, what, what excites me about it a lot of things, you know, when I was uh, at Walmart, we had a euphemism uh, that we still use. You, you can do good and do well at the same time. Our, our, the Walmart sustainability program was about making the business more efficient. It was about saving money, wasting less. 
And you, you can do that in a way that benefits everybody, benefits the community, benefits your, your, your footprint. There's, there's a way to do it and do good and do well at the same time. And I'm excited when people go down that road. The, the second piece is, you know, as a longtime restaurant industry advocate, you know, we tend to be in a public facing space, whether it's the media or elected officials saying no or playing defense, you know, and for us to say, hey, we're going to go forward. We're not going to wait for I've, I've always, as I've talked to restaurant execs and talked to gatherings and conventions, I, I, I've never quite understood the logic of, of losing control over a process. You're, we're going to get there eventually, and you're going you're gonna to make the decisions for yourself or some government entity is going to make those decisions for me. And it always seemed like whatever financial investment you had to make or personnel investment, it was worth it. That was the cost of staying in charge, right? And if people that want to just deny and, and cheap it out, you're going to get there, but you're you're just going to get there based on a federal law or state law or whatever that's going to be that you may have no control over the process. And what you guys are doing is, is you're taking control of your own process. And as you move forward on this, very likely any governmental actions at the state or federal level, you all will have already far exceeded. You minimize the risk and the disruption of your business by getting out ahead of it. And that investment is going to, I would think, return tenfold down the road, but there are painfully few companies that do that. So kudos to you all. So, you know, I, I, if, if I'm a company, my last question for y'all. So, you know, there, there are a lot of young, young, new, even if it's a legacy brand, but there are a lot of startups and tech-based companies as the industry itself changes, delivery, ghost kitchens. You know, we're, we're almost becoming in 10 or 15 years, tech companies that deliver food as opposed to restaurant companies delivering experiences, right? There's this is kind of this grow and this change in the, in the marketplace. But if I'm a, a company that, that wants to get involved in this space, how does somebody just go about doing that? You don't just put out a, a, a LinkedIn ad and said, give me a sustainability person. You've got to, what's the process a company should go to to get to this space? Yeah, I think this deserves its own podcast. We could talk about this for hours. Um, and I'm sure Natalie will say something much more poignant than me because like my mind goes in a number of different directions here. But if we're really thinking about a company first starting as they are, and there are many mission-driven brands that are beginning today and have been for a few years now, I would say that the biggest thing to focus on is being focused and develop a strategy and a mission that is relevant to your brand. It can be really, really easy to want to tackle everything and do everything because there are so many issues that exist today. But I think success lies in building you know, a strategy that both your employees and your guests can organically believe in and where with all the dedicated attention, you can really make a huge impact. Completely echo um, everything that, that Becky said. And I think to your point as well, you know, sustainability, it's not just doing good in the world. It is doing good in the world, but it's also part of the business strategy. Um, it's a really important part of the business strategy. And it's about business continuity and kind of future-proofing your business, both in the interests of, you know, what your guests care about, as well as, like you said, where regulation is going, right? So in order for all of that to work in the long term, it can't just be an accessory consideration by some siloed team. You really need to address uh, the key challenges that are relevant to your industry, your space, whatever, you know, space you play in. Um, you need to address those in an integrated way across the business exactly to what Becky was saying earlier, working so cross-functionally across the business with operations, with finance, um, with our supply chain team, all of that needs to happen. Otherwise, it's not going to work um, and it's not going to last. And kind of building on that, when companies are making forward-looking commitments, I think it's important to recognize that it, it shouldn't feel easy. 
taking on new responsibilities and expectations for an entire business, you know, five years out, 10 years out, it's really big stuff. And you could say, if everybody else is doing it, then, hey, maybe we shouldn't think so hard and let's just put it out there. You know, tens uh, of other companies, hundreds of other companies at this point have potentially put out net zero commitments. And that might lead you to think, hey, this is easy. We should get on, on the bandwagon. But it really can't be that way if you want it to work in the long term. And as we've matured in this sustainability journey, we've definitely learned that having a strong plan is just as important as having a strong vision and ambition. And our climate work at RBI is one example where that approach has come to life for us recently, but it's also really relevant across all areas of our work, like you know, packaging, responsible sourcing, where we're building out detailed roadmaps for the future. And I think on an individual level as well, like that's kind of the, the corporate lens um, or view, but on an individual level, I think everyone has a role to play. Thinking about how cross-functional this type of stuff needs to be, I don't think it's going to be too far into the future where everyone's job will touch sustainability. And I think being proactive about how you can contribute within your own role um, and with your skills, I think will, you know, serve you well for the future, no matter where you sit in the business. I, I mean, that was, I hate to even add anything on. That was so perfectly <laughs> said, Natalie. Um, first off, I'm forever stealing the term future-proofing. That is now my term. And I have a podcast. I'm going to say it everywhere and claim it as my own. Okay, just so you know, I just want to be candid about it. Now, that's a great term, future proofing. I love that. Uh, but the second piece, you know, on kind of a tangential and a related note, and it goes back to kind of the culture shift. When I talk to hundreds of execs over the years, and you see company after company kind of get into the government affairs space, sustainability space, and they're, they're like, how should we set this up? And I'm like, first of all, why? Why are you engaging in this space, this conversation? What is it? Unless you're super clear and super sober and lucid about what it is you're trying to accomplish and for whom and what audiences and what the outcomes are, it always is fleeting. And I've seen so many companies go into the sustainability space and the new CEO comes in and they go, it goes away or the, the government affairs uh, position, you know, goes away after two or three years because it wasn't built from the inside out. It wasn't a culture. It was superficial. It was done for appearances or to placate some constituency for the short term. And it never lasts. And you can watch, you can go back through corporations and watch how they've, they've failed in these spaces. But what, what, I, what I'm hearing from you all is, 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 and what I know to be true for, for working with the company is that this is coming up from within and it's, it's throughout all the branches of the tree and it will, it will, it will survive Jose's tenure and it will survive Jose's, you know, successor's tenure. And, and you kind of turn it into a culture. And so kudos to, to the both of you for, I don't know how the two of you turn that battleship of RBI so quickly in 18 months. I'm still kind of flabbergasted by that, but um, uh, it's impressive. So uh, just thank you guys for, for coming on the pod. I would love to um, make a reservation for, you know, a year from now and, and talk to you both again and say, you know, how are we doing? What, what, what do we learn in the last year? What's what's next? What do we see on the horizon? Just kind of keep the conversation going. Yeah, we'd love that. And we can bring our best pal, Fabian, who leads supply chain sustainability to to talk about all he learned in, um, in related to beef and, and carbon reduction and, and so on. It could be a cool conversation. Fantastic. Becky, Natalie, thanks for joining us on Working Lunch. Uh, really appreciate the expertise and look forward to talking to you again. Thanks so Thank much, you. Joe. Thanks so much. Well, Franklin, uh, RBI is lucky to have uh, some professionals like Becky and Natalie on board. Obviously, they're uh, impressive leaders in their space and for their, for their organization. But I mean, as an old 
corporate hack that you make fun of for being so old. And I know navigating big companies is hard, but I, I know I harped on a little bit during the interview, but to get through that process in 18 months, I mean, that is, that is a big giant battleship. They've made, made do a major movement in a very relatively short period of time. I was impressed with that. What would impress you the most? Yeah, that congratulations, um, had tip to RBI. Uh, we've seen leadership in other sectors and RBI is clearly leading the restaurant sector. You know, we, they're not the, they're, they're the first, they're not going to be the last McDonald's actually just this last week followed RBI in their announcement. So, you know, we're going to have more charging into this space, but RBI is the first out They're They're, they're leading the charge. And they deserve credit for that. Yeah. And, and kudos to them again, but uh, you know, not to put a damper on it, but the real work begins now. That's the compliance piece and following through on those commitments and, you know, they are going to be working long hours with their supply chain, with the franchisees, with all aspects of the company, uh, making good on those commitments. But uh, uh, my money's on them. So kudos to to RBI, to Becky, Natalie, and the team there. I uh, really appreciate them coming on the pod and talking to us. Well, as listeners uh, will, will note, we have been talking about this OSHA uh, standard the president announced almost a month ago vaccine program and how employers over a certain size, 100 employees, had uh, certain new mandates potentially coming their way. And um, we thought it would be good to get some expertise on the on the process, on the subject, what operators should expect coming down the pike. And Ed Iggy from the National Retail Federation, Vice President of Government Relations and Workforce Development. Ed, you've been on the pod before. Thanks for coming back on the pod and level setting for us what is going on in D.C. with regard to OSHA. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me back. I really appreciate the opportunity. All right. So September the 9th, the president yep. of the United States announced, made this major announcement uh, regarding mandatory vaccine uh, program mandates on businesses. Uh, at the, it, it seems like it's been sort of some level of chaos in the ensuing three and a half weeks since he did that. Looks like it caught kind of his agencies a little flat-footed, like there wasn't coordination between the White House and some of these agencies. It kind of level set and what's happened subsequent to that and, and more importantly, what's going to happen going forward? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, going way back, going last time I was on the podcast, uh, we talked, it looked like the uh, Biden administration was going to put out an emergency temporary standard regarding COVID-19. It was going to call for mass mandates. It was going to call for social distancing. And they hemmed and hawed for months on end. You remember they said they were going to get a standard out by, uh, by March 15th. Didn't happen. Uh, March 15th came and went. May 15th, two months later, the CDC drops their mask requirements for vaccinated individuals. Case numbers are way down. And then finally, June 10th, they finally get their their ETS out, but it only applies to healthcare workers. So over the summer, obviously, Delta numbers come back up. And then by September 9th, to your point, the president's sick and tired of this. The seven-day running average is 148,000 cases per day nationwide. And so he he's had enough. He puts out the statement saying that all employers with 100 employees or over will have to mandate the COVID-19 vaccine, whether they like it or not. And um, so where has it been since then? We haven't heard much of anything. Uh, we have asked for input from the department. We have asked for some back and forth as to what they're thinking and some suggestions. We suggested at the very least they would want to talk to our members who have already put in voluntarily implemented vaccination mandates. And they don't even want to do that. So we have had very little back and forth with the department. We've already sent them two letters. We'll probably send them more, irrespective of the fact they've said they don't want any input. You know, um, since since they made the announcement, 
It's worth noting that the seven-day average is down already down 28% with no uh, ETS in place. So the numbers are already getting better even without an ETS. And they keep saying that they're going to do something here in the next few weeks. And get a sense from outside of the pending mandate. You know, we're reading the papers, uh, you know, every day about companies just, just doing it on their own, especially airlines making moves in that, in that space. I believe there's a Wall Street Journal article last week, I think, or New York Times kind of uh, talking about the progress of Tyson's uh, internal policy. Do, you know, do, do you see, do you think any of that, that 28% that you're talking about the decline in the, in the COVID cases is as a result of that? Is there any, is there any, I guess it's probably too soon for any empirical data, but do you have any anecdotal data from talking to your neighbor, your, your, your members and other big employers? So I do have two, two large members of mine who have already implemented, again, voluntarily vaccination mandates, which is to say Disney and Walmart. And I think it's important to keep three things separate, right? So it's, there's the vaccine. My members have distributed the vaccine. We've spent a lot of money incentivizing the vaccine. And again, we've seen the numbers move on these uh, monetary incentives. So whether it was $100, $200, what it, uh, paid time off, whatever the grant was, we've seen the numbers move, not a lot but just enough to um, you know, a single digit amount of percentage points um, whereby we've seen employees get the vaccine. Again, my members are very strongly in favor of the vaccine. Some of my members also have mandated the vaccine for, their, for targeted sets of their, of their employee base, right? So Disney, whose business is come see our theme parks, come, you know, come on our cruises, they've mandated the vaccine for those employees because they have a vested interest in getting folks to come to to their facilities. So again, that's the second component. And then the third component is this federal ETS. You can be for the first two components, which I am, and still be skeptical of the federal ETS, because to your point, various employers are going are going to behave differently. If you're running some, I don't know, massive coal mine out in northeastern Wyoming and everybody's secluded in their own truck, um, and they're all outside. If you know, if you're running some landscaping company outside, you you know, you may not need an ETS. You may not need a, vac- a vaccine mandate in your employ- in, in your business. So um, where we've seen the vaccine mandate kick in, yeah, we've seen the numbers budge. And again, we've seen them budge based on incentives too. Uh, what does this look like across the workforce? The White House says it's. Um, so I'll use the White House's numbers, and I'll and I'll use Goldman Sachs's numbers. So White House says this this mandate is going to apply to 80 million people. Goldman Sachs is saying, well, of those 80 million people, are probably somewhere between 70 and 75 percent are already vaccinated. So that leaves somewhere around 28 percent who have not gotten the vaccine. Of that 28 percent, about half, so 14 percent of the total universe, are probably going to go ahead and get the vaccine. That means that's going to leave an additional 14 percent for us to deal with. That's really the 14 percent my guys are worried about. So those folks are going to claim a religious disability excuse me, religious exemption, a disability-based exemption, or they're going to get tested weekly, or they're just going to leave their jobs and go work for somebody with less than 100 employees. So, so let's talk about that. Uh, two, two kind of buckets there. You talked about the coverage. I, I want to get to, I want to get to cost and who shares, who, who owns that cost. Uh, but first I want to get to coverage. You know, how, how do you see them? You have a lot of franchise members and a lot of companies that have, use the franchise business model. You know, are they going to aggregate to 100 employees if I'm a, a franchisee that has, you know, four units with 30 people? Am I a 120 person employer or am I a 30 person employer? How, how, my sense is the Biden administration has been pretty clear. They're going to try to make that net as wide as possible and capture everybody would be my gut. But Absolutely have right. you had any conversations about franchisees and franchisors and how they're going to be treated? 
That's exactly right. So yeah, so one of the few answers uh, we've already gotten, uh, we've probably gotten two answers, I'd say substantive answers at this point. And one of them is the answer to your question that you just posed, which is if you have, to your point, you know, three facilities with 40 employees each, you are covered by this standard. So um, it's 100 employees, and they're going to count that as broad as possible. Uh, interestingly, the other answer we have gotten is regarding home-based employees. Home-based employees will be excluded from the standard. Other than that, it's hard to really try to figure out where they're going on this. I will say on the number count, on this 100-employee count, that is not that is nothing. I've been doing OSHA issues for 20 years. That is nothing OSHA has any, any base. That 100-employee that mark, that, that has no basis in any OSHA policy. Uh, regulation or uh, or law. It's a brand new number pulled presumably out of thin air. Uh, we can talk about grave danger and necessity here in a second, but they're going to have to somehow show that the grave danger exists only for uh, for large employers, quote unquote, large employers over 100 employees. And they're going to have to show that two similarly situated employers, one with 99 employees and the other with 100 employees, that there's grave danger in the second facility, but not in the first. And I don't know how they show that. So, well, it's it's not the first time a government agency has pulled a number out of thin air. So, but that's, right. that's right. interesting context you put around that. And talk, talk to me about cost a little bit. You know, I'm that I'm that five unit franchisee. I have 120 employees. Some are going to get tested. Some are going to get the vaccine. In most cases, the vaccine has been free testing. You can get private testing. You can get public testing. If there's a cost involved, where where do you for, do you foresee the employer? picking up that cost? Do you foresee the employee picking up that cost? If the, it will be tax deductible for either of them, how do you see all that playing out? So I'll tell you what I would like to see, and then I'll tell you what I think is going to happen. So NRF has taken the position that if the employee does not um, want the vaccine, that the cost of the te weekly testing should be on the employee, provided that they are not, provided that they do not have a religious or disability-based exemption that is, of course, bona fide. Our position is, with, in the absence of an exception, if the individual simply does not want the vaccine, that they should pay for it. But, it, but I find it really unlikely that the, the system administration is going to take that position. My guess is the position the administration is going to take is that the employer has to pay for each and every test. Now, this, this would cover folks who don't want the vaccine, folks who have a religious-based exemption, and folks who have a disability-based exemption. And they're going to make us try to, at least they're going to try to make us pay for the time off for that individual, particularly in states like California, New York, and Massachusetts, to go and take the test, uh, whether it's a home-based test, whether it's sitting in line at, you know, some county facility somewhere. I think they're going to try to make us pay for that as well. So that is the testing piece right now, weekly testing. And that's, again, and we haven't even discussed, I've talked to some of my members are even the, you know, are the folks who distribute the home-based tests. It's really unclear whether, whether there are enough tests in this country for employers to even procure them to satisfy this weekly testing standard that the administration imagines. And, and so, you know, getting way ahead here, but, you know, it's, what, what, what's the compliance piece of this look like? I'm just thinking about it, you know, again, I'm going back to my franchisee. I, I can't really get too far into their business I mean, healthcare is a very private That's entity. Right. A lot of laws around, a lot of privacy laws around that. I've got to, I've got to really get into someone's private business to verify whether they've done these tests or not. That, that puts me on legally precarious ground at best. It's you know probably a new area of law we haven't talked about. You know, I don't, I don't know what the employer. 
I'm, I worry about what the employer is supposed to do. It seems like everywhere they go on the compliance piece, there's going to be they're going to be buzzing into an electric fence that they didn't see. And I, you know, and, and again, part B of that is, I mean, how do they prove? How does the how does the employer prove that, that all this testing has been done? So let me, yeah, let me take that in two different parts. So the first part is who's vaccinated and who isn't, right? And and as you well know, if if you talk to any employment lawyer. The minute you start dividing people up in an employment base in, in categories, you're immediately running into trouble. That being said, both this administration and the last administration, who don't even agree on what time of day it is, both agree that employers have the authority and have the legal ability to impose vaccination mandates, and they can do so legally. They can ask who's vaccinated, they can, and then they can treat people differently because they have that information. Now, you again, you have to pr- provide for the religious and uh, disability related exemptions. And then, okay, so now the so now this thing goes into effect. What the heck does the verification process look like? Our position, NRF's position, is that they should allow just about every form of verification. So they should allow our guys to scan, to say, look, email us a scan of your vaccination card. They should say that we, they should allow us to use the mobile apps where you put your um, vaccination card. I just went to a concert in, the, in DC the other day. I had to scan my vaccination card into an app that verified that, that that should be legal. But then also, and this is something that Cal OSHA has already done, is they should just allow self-attestation. They should allow the employees simply to say, yes, I'm vaccinated. And if they sign a piece of paper saying they're vaccinated, they're vaccinated. Um, we should not be in the game of trying to figure out what is and what is not a bona fide vaccination card. Yeah, it just seems uh, com- completely fraught with 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 danger. So, so talk to me about the process. Where is OSHA in this rulemaking process? It's tend to be fairly long, thoughtful process. You know, there's, there's comment periods and blah, 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 blah. And, you know, they're going to expedite this thing as fast as possible. So what what does the time frame look like? until this mandate, whatever the final mandate is, until it's the law of the land. Okay. So the first thing they need to do is they need to clear three legal hurdles. So they need to show that COVID-19 is a grave danger. That's number one. Well, 70% of their population base, according to Goldman Sachs, affected people in this vaccination mandate are already vaccinated. The remaining 30, some percentage of those guys have natural uh, immunity. They've already had COVID-19. We're 18 months into this thing. So is COVID, they first need to show that COVID is a grave danger. I don't know. Is it? Yeah, clearly to some people, it's a serious, serious problem. I don't mean to mitigate the the danger of the virus at all and the dangers of the, the resultant disease. But by the same token, they have to show as a legal standard that COVID-19 presents a, a grave danger to all these employees. That's what they're currently putting pen to paper on right now. Then the second thing, the second hurdle they need to clear is necessity. They need to show that the only way that this grave danger, in this case, COVID-19, can be addressed is through an emergency temporary standard. Now, we talked in the last podcast, ETSs are very, very rare, right? OSHA hasn't done one before COVID-19. OSHA hadn't done an ETS since 1982. Very rarely used section of the act. And so they need to show, and this is the, this is the hurdle that is really high, and therefore that's why this thing hasn't been used all that much, that the only way to achieve their goal of reducing the danger of COVID-19 is through this emergency temporary standard. That means all NIOSH regulations are not enough. That means all CDC guidance is not enough. That means all current OSHA guidance is not enough. And that means all the voluntary efforts 
that restaurants and retailers and other employers have taken, whether it's mask mandates, whether it's capacity limits, plexiglass, uh, vaccination drives, incentives, um, home delivery, all the things that we've done, curbside service, everything we've done, all of that, plus all the existing guidelines is not enough to mitigate the spread of the virus and thus reduce the grave danger. That's, that's legal hurdle number two. And that's, that's, again, that's what they're putting, trying to write, write down right now. And they're pulling lawyers in from all across the labor department into OSHA to try to pull this off. And then the last thing is feasibility. They need to be able to say to us that implementation of the standard is legal and legally feasible. So OSHA cannot say to our restaurant members, hey, you have to design an oven that will not burn your workers. It's just not feasible. So that's a standard in the law. They need to, they need to sh somehow show that this thing is going to be feasible. So somehow they need to say to us, here's the plan. Here's how you can implement this vaccination program. Here's how you can test on a weekly basis, the 15% of workers who are not going to get the vaccine. And here's how you adjudicate what is and what is not a bona fide religious exemption. They need to walk us through all of that and make it and make it done in a feasible way. Um, again, to your point, usually the, the rule promulgation process for OSHA is years long. They're going to try to jam this into a matter of weeks. My best guess is we see something um, going over to the White House in late October, maybe early November. At that point, the White House will have it for about two or three weeks. Uh, the office over there is Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs, and they're going to review it for a few weeks, and then we'll see some some version of an ETS. The minute it comes out, it is in effect. It is, has the effect of law, and then they will start taking comment. The utility of that is beyond me. But they will start taking comment on their ETS uh, once it is already in place and on the books and effective. Well, and that that in itself is a little is a, is a sniff and aberration for the process, correct? Totally. You know, totally. Have a comment period after the fact. Right. Right. So, okay. So, so if I'm an operator, I, I have you know a couple of restaurants here. I'm a big corporate player, whatever. Yep. And I can expect that I will be covered under this law by Thanksgiving, maybe. Yeah, I think that's probably right. I mean, we've asked for a 90-day implementation timeline once they put it on the books. That would get my guys, again, most of my members are retailers, that would get them at least through the holiday season before they would have to begin the implementation process. I think at the very least, if they're even remotely fair-minded about this, they would have to allow for a 30-day implementation time period, which is to say you have to at least assume that even the best intention employer who, who this goes into effect, let's just say, I don't know, for the sake of the argument, November 1st, it hits the federal register, it's in black and white, it's in effect. November 1st, it goes into effect. Okay, let's say one of my guys, November 2nd, goes out and says to every single one of their workforce, okay, look, let's, you know, let's, I'll drive you down, you know, we'll, we'll provide transportation, we'll give you Ubers, you need to go get the vaccine today. Well, even at that point, as you well know, it's still a month until you're fully vaccinated, right? So you need a, you need the first dose, you need the second dose, and then you need a two-week delay for it, for the vaccine to be fully fully activated. So I think at the very least, yes, I think it's somewhere around Thanksgiving um, that'll be, be in effect. I, my guess, my hope would be that the administration would give us the a longer implementation time period, again, given how rushed the standard is how broad this standard is and how onerous it's going to be for employ employers. My, my, you know, and you're, you're the expert, you know, and you're probably right, but it seems to me again, that they want to, they want to move as fast as possible, cover as many people as possible. And, you know, they're going to want a situation when shopping malls are jammed in December 
uh, with people doing Christmas shopping, that they're going to want as many of those folks mandated, you know, vaccinated as possible. So it may be wishful thinking that we get put off past the holiday season, you know, for that implementation or that 90 day rolling implementation. But we will see, Ed, can I kind of circle uh, your calendar for when it goes into effect, uh, come back on the pod and kind of walk us through what now, man? Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Here, baby, and and here's what we all need to know. What we here's the do's and don'ts. I'm sure you're going to have a lot of work uh, between now and then putting together those do's and don'ts and walking you know, the nation's largest employers through this process. Yeah. So you're, you're going to be a busy, busy autumn in the Iggy household uh, this yeah, year. Yeah, no, for sure. I, you know, I don't really know what this thing's going to look like. I mean, for instance. The president made noises about that. Well, inside of this thing, there has to be a paid time off standard inside the vaccination standard to make sure that employers provide paid time off to employees to go get the vaccine. And then he went further and he said, yeah, not only should you provide paid time off for your employees to get the vaccine, but if those employees have loved ones and they need to drive their loved ones to the, to the, to the doctor to get the vaccine, well, that needs to be part of the OSHA standard, too. I, for the life of me, and I even put this question directly to the solicitor of labor, who's the chief legal officer for the labor department. I said, where on earth inside the OSH Act do you see the ability to create a paid leave standard, not only for the employee in some sort of medical release, I don't know, you know, situation, but for the employee's loved ones? And she didn't, and she didn't know. You know, I, this is going to be a really, really interesting few, few months to your point. Um, I do think that it will be challenged as soon as it comes out. I think 22 state attorney generals have already singled, signaled as much. They sent a seven-page letter over to the department outlining what will be basically be the framework of of a lawsuit in the event that this thing gets uh, gets enacted. So, yeah, no, I'm happy to come back, and uh, this is going to be really, really interesting to watch. And uh, it's definitely a new area for OSHA, and um, I think they're treading on some pretty uh, legal thin ice at this point. Never a dull moment, my friend. Well, look, I appreciate it. We'll, we'll end on that note with a with a bookmark to revisit here in six, seven weeks and see how this thing is rolling out. Um, I do appreciate you taking the time. I know it's a, it's a busy time for you, but uh, I think it, it was an interesting conversation that will be give a lot of clarity and guidance for operators in our audience. And uh, I appreciate you taking the time, pal. Absolutely. Thanks so much. Look forward to coming back. Take care, Ed. Frank, I tell you, man, having Ed Eggie as the point of the spear in this conversation is pretty impressive. And that guy knows, that guy's probably forgotten more stuff this morning than I will ever know in this space. Um, and he has a way of just kind of really simplifying and breaking it down so everybody can kind of get their arms around it. Uh, the process is, is kind of in limbo a little bit. We got a little bit of closure this week after we taped that interview that the, the final reg's gone to the White House to the Office of uh, Regulatory Affairs there, OIRA, Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs, uh, for the kind of the final, final blessing. Franklin, do you think OSHA will start the kind of the, the slap on the wrist compliance piece right away or give employers time to kind of get their sea legs on this stuff? I think there'll be a little bit of a runway. I mean, this is going to be bumpy. There's a lot of stuff that needs to be worked out. It's coming down very quickly. It's going to be in conflict with a number of state rules, and we're going to have folks like Governor Abbott and DeSantis that are actively um, trying to create that conflict and put employers in the middle. So, you know, employers are just going to have to stay dialed into the space. We appreciate Ed kind of being the tip of the spear in D.C., and uh, we're just going to have to work through this. It's going to be an ugly process, um, and it's going to stretch out over at least weeks, probably more like months. 
Yeah. And, you know, from a the compliance piece, you know, I think Ed pointed out that, that, you know, if employees choose to go the testing route, there aren't enough tests on the planet to, uh, to satisfy this rulemaking. So it's going to be interesting. You said choppy waters ahead or whatever the term you use, that is a euphemism. That is an understatement as well. Hopefully Ed, uh, Ed committed to coming back uh, and straighten us out in a couple of weeks and uh, let us know what's going on in this process. So we're fortunate to have a resource like Ed. Uh, and his team, the National Retail Federation. So kudos to that that team for their good work in this space. So Franklin, last week, the uh, the monthly jobs report came out. A lot of media fanfare building up to it. A lot of media attention after it uh, was issued, so forth and so on. And usually in the in the jobs world, you know, you, the, the the changes are you know fluctuate. Job openings, new jobs, blah blah blah. Joining the workforce, Franklin in August. A record 4.3 million workers, not not hired, quit their jobs in August. 4.3 million workers quit their jobs in August, and guess what sectors were in first place in that in that uh, exodus of workers? Yes, you guessed it, food and retail industries. Franklin, what do you make of all this? Well, having worked at the labor department for a good period of time and having focused on jobs report day, it's a big deal at the labor department. It's it's a the time of the month where the labor department leads the national news. Usually I I never remember ever having seen the jobs quit that rate being the headline coming out of a jobs report. So, I mean, that, that kind of tells you where we are and, you know, this comes on the heels of, you know, it's also strike Tober, right? We've got a lot of buzz around um, strikes, not only this week, but throughout this month that really hasn't spilled over into the restaurant sector so much yet but I suspect that it will. Workers are, they're not having it. You know, that's that's just it. And it's a really competitive environment and we're losing workers. We're having trouble attracting workers and we're having trouble retaining workers. They're leaving our sector for other opportunities. Um, So it is uh, rough out there and it's hard to see how it's gonna get a lot better um, in in the near term. Yeah, and I think there are, you know a lot of factors. Obviously, we've been talking about it for months on this podcast. All the ones we've been talking about: childcare, pandemic, people for health and safety reasons, blah blah blah. But at the same time, in spite of the inflationary uh, challenges ahead of us, you know, economy's moving along. There, 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 there's a lot of there's a lot of signs out there looking for labor for a lot of reasons. And this this dearth of labor is really be, is I mean, it has been a problem for a while, and it's operationally impacting people's ability to even open the doors, uh, much less execute running their, their restaurant or their convenience store or their retail establishment. So do, you, do you foresee, Franklin, this continuing with the, with the uh, September jobs report that'll be issued in October look the same as this, do you think? I think the volatility is going to continue. So, I mean, it, it, let's get out of the labor market and look at the rest of the American economy and the world economy. When you shut down and then gear back up, the international economy, there are kinks that have to be worked out. And we see that with, you know, cargo ships outside the ports. You know, we see that with all the supply chain issues. I just got an email. You may have heard it ding from my dry cleaner that says there's a national hanger shortage. And so they may not be able to accommodate dry cleaning. So I think the labor market, like, is having many issues kind of starting back up. And and I think we took just took for granted how this whole thing works so smoothly, shutting it down and restarting it is not going to be smooth. And so, yeah, I expect more volatility and showing up in all kinds of places, including the labor market. Interestingly, I I know we have different uh, 
dry cleaners. Of course, I haven't used a dry cleaner in about two years because of the pandemic, but uh, I got the same hanger shortage uh, notification as well. Small world. Franklin, I'm going to answer my own question. I don't see, I, I see the same factors taking, taking place. There are just too many people leaving their jobs. The papers are full of articles, Wall Street Journal, New York Times, Washington Post, all your major dailies about, I'm not talking about restaurant and retail industry. I'm talking about, you know, workers at age 50 and 55 that are retiring, that is stopping the workforce. Will there be enough retirement funds? What does that mean to all these other systems? So it's just across the board, across industries, people reevaluating their relationship to work. And that has got to be scary for economists, uh, employers, large employers, uh, with scads of people just leaving the workforce, uh, and then saying, well, yeah, I'm just going to ride it out for the next 30 years, 40 years, whatever that may be. I don't know how a, a major international economy like ours survives on that kind of trend line. So it's, uh, some, some sobering, not only sobering news today, but sobering news probably for, for the, for, for a long time in this space. It's time for the Legislative Scorecard, where we go around the country and update you on the latest legislative and regulatory developments. And Franklin, let's give a brief update on the vaccine mandate in OSHA and OIR. Yeah, basically, uh, the emergency standard has been transmitted from OSHA over to the White House. They will review it, and then it will be sent back to OSHA for final release uh, of the rule, which all that, because we're in this emergency status, it's an expedited process. It could happen very quickly. Hopefully, there's a little bit of time for employers to uh, comply with this, but we'll just have to see what comes out in that final rule. Frank, a lot of action in the wage front this week. Let's start with Flagstaff, Arizona. We've covered this developing story over the course of the last six, eight months. Tell us the latest and greatest what's happening in Flagstaff. Yeah, so um, rewinding the tape, Flagstaff raised its minimum wage above the state rate. Uh, the state of Arizona, Republican controlled at the time, the legislature did not like that. And so they passed legislation that essentially said that for municipalities that go above the state rate, they have to compensate the state for cost borne by that increase. So, you know, state employees reside within Flagstaff, their uh, salaries may go up and there may be a cost to the state for that. And so the state sent a bill uh, to Flagstaff for $1.1 million. The city took to the courts and said, we're not going to pay this. And the judge said, you don't have to pay this. It was really a technicality. It basically said the state started the process too late, um, didn't follow the legislation in that regard, and uh, included contractors that were exempted. It's also worth noting that the, uh, the, lead, the, the city ordinance like provides an out for the state. So really kind of the substance of this law was not tested in, in the court ruling, but the city's off the hook from paying this. So I, I expect we'll <laughs> see this challenged again at some point, not necessarily in, in this, but maybe the next time a, a bill arrives. So probably, probably not over in Flagstaff in this one. Yeah, it's just the ongoing kind of piss and match between red, red states, blue cities, uh, and red states trying to crack down on the uh, activities of, of jurisdictions. Uh, Franklin, we report often on the changing labor market as employers in the entry-level space adjust wage rates. USAA made some news this week on their pay scales. Uh, yeah, that's right. They bumped up their pay scale, kind of following with Bank of America, um, 30% increase to uh, heading up to $21 an hour. That's from $16 an hour. 21 bucks, man. Not too shabby. Uh, entry level at the bank. 
Speaking of entry-level wages, Frank, a little noise in the, the minimum wage field of economics this week. The uh, Nobel Prize was awarded. There were three uh, recipients of the Nobel Prize for different uh, fields of research. Uh, one, David Card, a professor at Berkeley, won for a significant amount of research he did in the minimum wage space. Yep. In the, uh, the early 90s, is probably the most cited piece of research in the minimum wage conversation, often miscited, I would say. But he studied in the early 90s, uh, minimum wage differential between, uh, I think it was Pennsylvania and New Jersey of 30 cents or something like that. And it was focused on QSR workers. And he found that the researchers found that the increase in the minimum wage basically had no correlated impact on employment, which runs counter to many of the industry arguments at the time and, and since. So anytime there's a minimum wage debate, somehow this study is cited. Uh, I would note, and I, I think probably the Nobel Committee and even the researchers would note that you know this is a very kind of limited study and there was a modest minimum wage increase in the early 90s, um, not like the $5 increases that we're kind of talking about today. So we have to be careful or should be careful about how we extrapolate the findings here. The other side, labor advocates are not that careful about that. And Nobel, the Nobel Committee's award of this is certainly adds credibility to this study and will will kind of buoy their arguments in this space. Yeah, I'd say that the takeaway is, you know, it, it must have been expansive enough to warrant a Nobel Prize, that's for sure. Um, but, I, you know, I, th I think the industry, you know, we've been playing with these job loss, minimum wage correlating the job loss. We can never really seem to cite it anecdotally. Here's a Nobel Prize being awarded for someone that's kind of running counter to the industry arguments. Obviously, current labor short, the current labor situation will be for the foreseeable future. You know, so my advice to the industry is to is to go double back and come up with some salient arguments on the correlation between wage inflation and pressure it puts on labor intensive industries because there's plenty of evidence now uh, and and credibility to to the, the the side of the argument that says we're 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 wrong on that. So we've got some homework to do on the industry side uh, on this space. Frank, I'm switching to paid leave. BLS says a lot more people have paid leave or access to them than we thought. Yeah, the Labor Department, uh, Bureau of Labor Statistics within the Labor Department released this kind of exhaustive report of all the data um, of paid leave during the pandemic. And really, it's, it goes back to March 2021. Um, and it shows that 79% of the civilian workforce had access to paid sick leave. Um, which is a high number, you, you know, it was in the low 70s from what I could find just kind of searching around um, sometime prior to the pandemic. So that's a pretty sizable kind of jump. Um, and I, I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of that hangs around, you know, that basically when you're approaching that kind of above 80% mark, you're in a pretty small island if you're not offering paid sick leave. Um, so that I think that's what's notable from this. You can go to BLS's website. They have paid sick leave and pay, paid family leave statistics up there. Um, pretty interesting stuff. And it definitely shows that the labor market is changing. Franklin, you pointed out some interesting uh, uh, learnings this week from uh, DHS and the Labor Department. What's going on with this Biden administration pivot away from kind of worksite immigration raids and more toward, quote unquote, exploitative employers? So the headline this week was, you know, no more workplace immigration raids. And that was kind of splashed across um, 
cable news and, and newspapers, but kind of deeper into the quote strategy to protect the American labor market, the conditions of American work site and the dignity of the individual. Once you get into the memo a little bit, um, there's kind of this, this pivot from targeting undocumented or unlawful workers that are in the country to the employers themselves, um, which is not that surprising in a democratic administration, but I think the the way that they're pivoting almost away from immigration towards other labor violations in the environment in the workplace is notable. Um, specifically, as you said, they're looking at exploitive employers. And they also, what they said about those workplace raids is they had a chilling effect on workers reporting labor violations in the workplace. All this is to say is they're trying to create kind of this environment in these workplaces where they can get more reported violations um, and, and go after the employers themselves. And the last part of the memo is calling for increased um, sinking of efforts between the Labor Department and DHS. And so DHS and the Labor Department's enforcing actions against employers will now be handled in kind of a case-by-case basis and coordinating. So you've got DHS almost getting into the Labor Department's game and looking for just traditional labor violations um, and in within these workplaces under the auspice of that, you know, this is creating an, an environment where people are trafficked right into these workplaces um, and taken advantage of. And so we've got to go stamp out those environments. So it, it, a lot of the devil's in the details here and, you know, remains to be seen exactly how this plays out. But it seems like an expansive play to move kind of DHS into this this area that it I think historically or traditionally probably hasn't played in. Franklin, um, one interesting uh, development in the, the insurance space in California, uh, while it doesn't directly affect industry employers, it tangentially could and could open the door to other types of insurance changes. What did, what did Gavin Newsom sign this week in the uh, health insurance space? This is really interesting. So it allows for um, adult parents to go on to the insurance plans of their children. So an adult parent without insurance can now join on the plan of, of a child. Very interesting approach. So what, what they were aiming for here is um, kind of pulling undocumented parents in, into health insurance plans. And this does not imply for employer plans. Now that I'm sure everyone had a heart attack, you know, so employer plans aren't going to see like a big increase in cost as a result of this. These are plans that are purchased in the marketplace, the, the you know, the Obamacare market, um, the individual market, but it potentially could lead to more costly plans there. And, you know, if it works well in California, <laughs> You could easily see it expanding pretty quickly to employer-based plans. So, some yeah, the, the plant, the, the 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 seed has been planted um, for a new way to look at that. So, again, it's something that we should kind of take note of as a change, kind of in that insurance marketplace. Obviously, it doesn't affect us now, but man, it kind of changes the conversation. To your point, if it if it kind of is deemed successful, be interesting to see how that plays out. Franklin, my calendar on the wall says October. But you you put a red Sharpie pen through that and you wrote in striketober. What does that mean? So once you get the TV and film crew unions involved, you're going to end up with striketober coming to a theater near you anytime soon. So um, 
Yeah, we got tens of thousands. The headlines will tell you hundreds of thousands, certainly tens of thousands of workers um, that are threatening to go on strike. Um, it's kind of a bunch of these individual union campaigns just due to the environment um, have, have merged together. TV and film crews, a John Deere manufacturing fight. We got healthcare workers going on strike. It's all getting bundled up into Striketober. Has not washed up on the restaurant and retail shores yet, but I got to tell you, I feel like it's a matter of time. We got many days left in October for that reality to uh, to come true. They're getting a lot of good press. It obviously feeds this larger narrative around the, you know, we talked about earlier in the podcast, the BLS numbers around quits, right? That workers are sick and tired and ain't taking anymore and they're leaving jobs and they've got the upper hand. So there's this much larger story that Striketober is folding into so I don't think the storyline is going away anytime soon, which means the unions will probably take advantage of it more and more. Franklin, my favorite headline of the week uh, this week is what's going on in Buffalo, New York with Starbucks. And amazingly, Starbucks closed two of the units that are in the process of being organized, saying they're going to take them offline for remodels and training purposes. Franklin, of the thousands and thousands and thousands of Starbucks outlets across the country, do you think it's entirely random that these two were picked out of that haystack and uh, taken offline? It's funny when, pipe, when pipes tend to break um, in the middle of union organizing efforts. It looks like, yeah, so this is two of the three units where they've got all the organizing activity. And it seems like it's pretty well documented that one of them was due for a renovation, overdue. The renovation was supposed to happen in January. And so it's, it's happening now. It seems like Starbucks is pretty well documented that they have converted individual stores in certain locations into training centers um, to help with the worker shortages that everyone, labor crunch that everyone's dealing with. One of the other locations was converted into essentially a, a training center. So all the employees that were working in those two locations are now scattered across the other locations in the city, you know, getting hours and with the expectation that we'll return to their location at some point. The NORB, I suspect, may have something to say about this. We'll have to watch that. But, you know, we're in the midst of kind of the uh, uh, this union organizing campaign. And it's it's the Starbucks Worker United Twitter feed has some interesting things to say about this um, as well. Um, it's worth a look. But we'll see how this works out. There's going to be a lot of twists and turns. And this is just one of many that we'll kind of watch as this, this thing plays out. I, you know, hat tip, if you will, to Starbucks. Uh, this is pretty hardball union politics they're playing. And uh, frankly, you know, personally, I didn't think they had it in them. Uh, pretty, pretty strident. And uh, we'll see. I suspect you're correct that the NLRB will, uh, will have a, an opinion or two on the matter going forward, but pretty, uh, pretty interesting things going on in uh, Buffalo, New York. Franklin, switching back out to California, uh, Gavin Newsom trying to come to the rescue of the restaurant industry again on permitting and alcohol to go and other things. Gavin Newsom coming to the defense of French Laundry and others. Um, we appreciate it. Um, he signed a series of bills to extend outdoor dining and alcohol sale permits for a year after the pandemic emergency ends. So that kind of gives um, establishments an opportunity to, you know, adjust their operations uh, permanently expand if they if they choose to. So um, good for him. Thanks. Thanks. It's good stuff to the to the state of California. And our last little item, this was a uh, particularly tough week for our colleague Carson Chandler. 
uh, among his favorite things in the world is junk food and the FDA and the Biden administration trying to pump the brakes a little bit on how much salt content we have in food. What's going on with the FDA? Man, are we talking about sodium again? I thought these conversations were over. It's like jerking me back to a, a bad nightmare a decade ago. Yep, the FDA re released voluntary sodium reduction guidelines for 163 categories, processed food, baby food, snacks, etc. They've been pending since 2016, non-binding recommendations for manufacturers and food service uh, to follow. Uh, and that will be for two and a half years. Joe, do you think there'll be non-mining and voluntary sometime after those two and a half years? What would you? Yeah, what would you I, I thought it was about? interesting. That was I didn't realize the process called for a kind of a uh, a period of voluntary compliance that you had to kind of exhaust before you could go into the kind of the, the real compliance mandatory uh, stuff. So I thought that was kind of interesting. I suspect that in the next couple of years, the industry is going to have a lot to say on this and. Who knows what the politics look like in two or three years and this process probably kicks <laughs> up again. What, you know, are well, there real world implications for quick service, casual dining restaurants? What, 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 if any of the real world implications for operators? Well, I mean, you know, look, at the end of the day, um, and I think this is where the industry landed a decade ago, whatever, you know, you'd rather have one national standard than a thousand state and local standards on this, right? So I, I think at the end of the day, two and a half years goes by, we're probably going to try to clean up with a stronger preemption and, and we're, we're probably going to end up with something and we're probably going to want it to have a stronger preemption in it. So I think that's probably, if I had to guess here from the, the cheap seats, Joe, that, that that's kind of where this is heading. You know, we'll, we'll have to pay attention to it, you know, as, as this all kind of plays out. So in the near term, you know, restaurant tours and our, our dear friend Carson Chandler don't have a whole lot to worry about. I'm hesitant to go on the record and say that, but yeah, I, I think that's probably the case. Well, I wouldn't want to get between Carson and his bugles and his daily snack regimen. All right. Well, that's another legislative scorecard for the week. A lot going on in D.C. A lot will continue next week and the weeks to come on the vaccine mandate and other issues. And as always, we'll be reporting back to you next time. Franklin, about three weeks from now, we have an election day off your election for governorships in New Jersey and Virginia. The Virginia race has gotten uh, unbelievable national attention. Started off as a, you know, Virginia is one of those states that was red for a long time, got purple, kind of got in the blue corner the last few years. Still at its core, probably a purple state. The uh, Democratic candidate, former governor, Terry McAuliffe, had a comfortable, you know, five to 10 point lead for most of the last eight, 10 months, uh, was successfully making the election a referendum on Trump, you know, hanging Trump around his Republican uh, opponent. And then five, six weeks ago, the Biden administration hits the wall. Uh, the popularity numbers are plummeting. And now that is being wrapped around Terry McAuliffe's neck and Biden is weighing him down. Now we're in dead heat in Virginia. Franklin, a lot of national noise, a lot of national attention. Tell me what's going to happen in Virginia and why it matters. I don't know how much it matters in terms of um, national implications. I mean, Unless McCullough wins by more than, let's say, five, and I don't think that's going to happen, um, I think it demonstrates that Dems are, are in trouble and they're going to have a bad midterm. And I think we always knew because, you know, the president, the first midterm for the president, newly elected president, is almost always bad for the president. So I, I, I think probably that's going to hold is kind of the national implications. I do think McCullough is going to lose. And I've been calling Virginia's going consistently Democrat in some of these past, I don't know, three or four election cycles. And we've seen a trend over and over Democrat and Democrats overperform. First off, 
you know, Yunk has no real record, right? And McCullough does. And I, I just don't, so it's always easier to kind of run when you don't have an existing record, you know, um, and not always, but it, it makes it harder to really draw distinctions. He hasn't taken votes. He doesn't have a lot of stuff in the public domain. McCullough, I, I also don't think really excites the base that much. And so that's another kind of dynamic in play. And look, Biden's just underwater, you know, just the way, you know, COVID has come back and the economy is sputtering and da, da, da. So I think all these dynamics plus some more kind of combined together are creating a really good environment for the repub. The question is, can he dance this dance between pulling in some of the Trump folks without going to Trump and, you know, pulling off some suburban voters that, that may be repelled from, you know, kind of the January 6th type stuff, you know, the election was a fraud type stuff. Um, he seems to be trying to dance that dance and we'll see, we'll see if he can or not. So I think it's going to be close, but I, I think it's going to break, break Republican. Yeah. You, you, you may well be right. I mean, there's the, the national mood right now, it's just kind of cantankerous. And I think Terry, Terry the Democrats going to pay the, pay the price for that. One thing I will be watching that will have implications for the midterms in 2022 and the next presidential election is, you know, what percent of the Trump base will come out and vote without Trump on the ticket? Are they Republicans or are they Trumpists? You know what I mean? I, not, I didn't articulate that well, but I wonder, do 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 10 percent of Trumpies stay home because Trump's their, their guy is not on the ticket? It'll be interesting to, you know, after the election, when the dust settles and we get the numbers and the, the data to see what what percentage of the base of the Trump base came out and participated in the process. So, yeah, I think uh, I think them may be in trouble. But, you know, in politics, anything can happen in the next three weeks and, and we'll have to see. Uh, but I do think, you know, he's, he's Democrats get a little bit of a more of a built in advantage. It's can the president. Is there is there any good news to happen in the next three weeks that uh, that Democrats can celebrate? Probably not. Uh, probably the window is too short, but it remains to be seen. We will keep you up to speed on this election, what's going on in New Jersey as the, the election cycle gets closer in the next three weeks, and we'll update you what's going on across the country. And until then, we'll say adieu, farewell, stay safe, stay informed. We'll talk to you next week. 